Insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Welcome to Triple I Insight into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous. But you can call me Thomas. For this episode, we were extremely honored to interview Dr. Shiraki Holly, author of the textbook, Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning, Classroom Practices for Student Success. This was the textbook that started it all, and to be able to interview such an esteemed author and public figure live was one of the highest academic achievements we have experienced thus far. So what's up? Very excited to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We read your book this past semester, so awesome. thought it was amazing and created a podcast solely around it. Awesome. But we are continuing oh. it, so. Oh, okay. I mean, the book in terms of the book study? The yeah, so we, um, we went through, oh, I there we go, this, and used a lot of the pause to ponders in order to answer them on our podcast in order to have sort of that student discourse. So we just created a podcast and Jessica here is actually our professor from that course. Hi, hi. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't, I didn't realize um, you're doing that, honestly. So um we would love to connect and share what you're doing with vab nation you know we'd amazing love, love to do that you know a lot of a lot of people do book studies you know so to, to put it in a podcast that is awesome that's really cool um basically what happened was jessica gave us the opportunity to do either a paper or art or a movie and she mentioned podcast so I was like I've done one of those before it didn't work out but I've done one so I know what to do so I just wanted to be able to glean more information from the discourse rather than just reading and regurgitating information that I'm going to forget right so but really the book paired with how Dr. Masterson kind of ran her class is actually why I decided to go into a master's and hopefully a doctorate. So I'm wanting to research CLR, diversity, ELL, and all of that in elementary education programs because it's not a requirement to have that before going in to teach for a lot of programs. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's totally right. Now's the right time to go for it. And uh, the more narrow and specific you are, the better. Yeah. So um, I wanted to start out just sort of introducing ourselves. I, I just did that. But Jessica and Annabelle and Thomas are my collabs here. So Jessica, why don't you, you start since you're our professor? Hi, Dr. Holly. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm Jessica Masterson. I'm assistant professor of teaching and learning at um, Washington State University, Vancouver, where I had the immense pleasure of working with these three amazing humans here. Um, and just so just to provide some brief context about the class in which they encountered your text, um, they're, they're in the junior cohort of a Bachelor of Arts in Education program. Our program is somewhat unique in that an ELL endorsement is woven into the program. So everybody graduates um, with an ELL endorsement from this program. 
uh, I selected, I was trying to find a book for this course that treated cultural and linguistic diversity and the need for responsiveness as foundational rather than an add-on. Um, and it was it was difficult <laughs> when I was doing some, some looking. So if you have recommendations, that's great. But the book, but I found your book and myself and the, the instructor of another section both adopted it for our course text such that we can um, that we could approach this court, this cohort of junior students who are just kind of learning what it means to be a teacher with, you know, kind of from the, from the get-go, letting them know that cultural and linguistic diversity and responsiveness is the work, right? Not like the pro level, but it's, it's the base level. Um, and so I asked students to read the book. We read most of the chapters, um, and I asked them to complete some formative assessments. As Jamie mentioned, I gave them the option in terms of how they wanted to respond to the text. Um, so, you know, full array of full array of multimodal options, including the podcast, which is uh, now you know it's very nicely produced. If you haven't heard it, it's it's really top quality, and it's streamed throughout the U.S., Canada, and Germany. There's at least one listener in Germany, so that's pretty exciting. So thank you so much. And it's great to, it's a great honor to meet you. No, yeah, same here. And thank you for, you know, your work and, and teaching, it, teaching it like you're teaching it. I, um, as often is the case, you know, a lot of people reach out to me, as you can imagine. And I always try to be um, accessible, available, you know, I don't. And um, when I end up, connecting with the people, I find out like they got a really cool thing going on, but I don't like, I don't, I didn't do any, you know, I don't know until this moment. So as I'm listening to you, like, I don't know if we're connected through Twitter or not. Cause I'm not, you know, I do, we, I mean, we should send a tweet out immediately to um, and put it on all our social in terms of uh, CLR all our social media stuff. Um, I think I think people would really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, and I'm saying that from the perspective of the educators who are engaged in this work, not just in terms of you know what it's saying about just my contribution, but I'm just talking about like the thousands of teachers across the country who are engaged in this work. They would love to hear your podcast. I guarantee it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um... I connected actually through Twitter and said, I wonder if we were to tag you in this, if you would even come here. And um, Yang actually, I think it was Yang who responded because Yang ended up getting back to me via email. Um, was like, send an email here and we'll get it set up. And I was just yeah. within five minutes. And it was, it was, I was wondering if it was fake. So <laughs> no, 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 no. No, and then, you know, I do, we have our podcast, Outrageous Love, the podcast. And so I've been very sensitive to podcasters. <laughs> now that I started podcasting, I realized it's its own community. And um, so when any, anytime anybody asks me, like, would you be a guest or anything that I can do to support like fellow cop podcasters? And I kind of thought that's where you were coming from, right? Um, so I was like, of course, I'll be a guest. I'll, I'll do whatever you need me to do just to support the the whole notion of the podcast community. That's really awesome. And um, excuse me, um, I'm really excited to meet you and get a little nervous. Uh, so, but um, before this, I was a preschool teacher and you gave, your book gave me a lot of terminology and actually gave me the words, what it needed 
for what I was doing, for what we learned about in that program. Um, and really just helped me shape the way I think all foundational teaching should be. And so I really thank you. And I'm, it's an honor to um, meet you and have the opportunity to gain some insight from you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Oh, and I'm Thomas. Yep. <laughs> uh, and I'm super excited too. My name's Annabelle. Nice to meet you. Um, what I loved about your book from the beginning was how much of a hybrid it was in putting theory with practice. Um, we didn't see that a ton in other books and I thought it made it a lot more practical for us. And it also just really validated a lot of ideas that I had coming into the teaching field and gave me like optimism in like, this is where we're going. And this is an opportunity for us to make change. Vabbing really stuck out to me. Uh, that's one of our core ideas in the book, but it made me think back to a lot of conversations I've had with my peers when I was in school and almost all of their lack of um, like their lack for enthusiasm towards school or their negative relationship with school started with a teacher that didn't see them or made them feel less than or that they weren't getting the um, help they need in one way or another through differentiation. So I thought this book was just, it was speaking to all of those experiences so well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the, that's one of the key um, themes of the book is, um, you know, the notion of the deficit, deficit perspective, yeah. So we're just going to go into the questions. Um, okay. We'll just use that for, for the podcast. So Thomas, why don't you go ahead and start? I know you talk a lot about journey to responsiveness and outrageous love, your outrageous love podcasts, but to our listeners, can you provide a breakdown regarding your background and why you decided to dedicate your life to educating people on culturally linguistic responsiveness slash babbing? Yeah, I mean, it's really like most of our CLR educators, uh, you know, I started off in a situation in Los Angeles uh, at a Los Angeles uh, middle school where uh, in my language, you know, I had a light bulb moment where I, I realized that, you know, all students weren't being educated equitably. And um, as a young, you know, as a young teacher, um, I saw firsthand kind of like all the things that I had read about in school um, at the time, um, uh, the guy's escaping me. Oh, uh, I was reading a lot of, uh, Jonathan, uh, Kozal, right. He was a, he was a big time, you know, savage inequalities, death at an early age. And I just kind of come off of that. And then I actually walked into it, walked into those situations. And, um, in that, I realized also that I was going to have to do something different. I mean, at that time, no one was really talking about cultural responsiveness. I mean, you read, you had Gloria Lansing Billings, of course. You had Lisa Delpit. Um, James Banks was, you know, like, you know, the grandfather, but that was more of multiculturalism, quote unquote. So I knew I had to do something different, but there was really nothing, there was nothing there. And um, that's what really, you know, that's where it really became more of a passion service for me at, at a Charles Drew Middle School, 100%. At the same time though, um, and I think this has to do more just with, you know, the universe, if you will. I had always been um, interested in pedagogy and instructional methodology. Like that had always been an interest of me and just like how, how you teach and how that can make a difference. Um, and so 
I had those two things going on and what kind of brought it all together is I started, I left Charles Drew and went to the district office to begin working in the professional development branch with a program called the Academic English Mastery Program. And I talk, you know, we talk about it in the book. And I worked under Dr. Norman Lemoyne, who was already like a national guru in terms of um, cultural responsiveness, but particularly around language and the valuing of home language, which is one of the chapters in our book. Like that whole chapter is based on Noma's, my work with Noma Lemoyne, Dr. Noma Lemoyne. Um, but I started doing professional development too. And I realized that teachers, they didn't have good professional development. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. The same thing that we're asking um, teachers to do with students, being engaging, being relevant, we weren't doing with teachers, right? And so I, I, got, I got really into professional development. My uh, chair at USC, he was a professional development guru, right? So I got tons and tons of like academic stuff around effective professional development, what works don't doesn't work. So I kind of, it was just like everything just came together, right? Because I had, I was working for a program that does professional development. I was writing curriculum for, then I was with a, with a, with a, a national ex expert in professional development. And so a lot of people don't realize this, but my expertise is really more around effective professional development. Um, and I only use the culture responsive piece in terms of like the dissertation work. And of course it was my, it was my own, you know, it was my, uh, it was my work work too, my regular job. So I think that's, it was just a, it wasn't intentional. You know, it wasn't, I never plotted it out. It was just a series of things that happened. Some people call them angels, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use. Right. Um, uh, I'm watching this crazy show uh, with, with Anna, Anna Sorkin on Netflix. And there's like this whole thing with kismet. <laughs> you have to be watching it to understand the reference. But maybe I was thinking like, oh, maybe that's what happened to me. I had some kismet, right? Um, but the bottom line is it all aligned for me. And um, I got to put it to practice once I started teaching at Cal State Dominguez Hills. And that's when I knew because I had, you know, students like you, right, in my classes, and they were, they were eating it up. They were like, this is great. We love your courses. And that's what I knew that I was kind of onto something from, from that point. That's really amazing. Thank you. You can definitely see a lot of that's evident within your book and how you set up the book. It wasn't just a text that was given to pre-service teachers. It was a text actually given to teachers to have them think about pausing and pondering and all of these things that they should or that are foundational for their teaching that could help really strengthen the culture of their classroom. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you have to understand when I was at the university as long, you know, it was during a time where we had um, what they called emergency credentials. I think they changed the name to provisional credentials, but these were people, my, my students at that time, they were in the classroom, they were teaching while they were getting their credential. So they were coming to class in the evening, just like, I need to know what to do the next day, right? It was very, it, you, you couldn't do the theory thing because they weren't going to go for it. A lot of these people were like accountants, engineers, you know, they were coming out of business because, you know, the business sector was, was, was dying down at that time. 
and people were coming into teaching. I literally had someone in my class who was a accountant or, or an engineer on a Friday and now was in front of seventh graders on a Monday. And, and they were, and they had to get their credential at the, you know, concurrently. So these people are like, we don't know what to do, Dr. Holly, like, and so that's why they were eating it up. The, you know, so the book, the, the concept was really made around teachers who were already teaching, but hadn't really received any type of certification, if that makes sense. I mean, it sounds crazy to say today, but that, that was the early 90s. No, that actually makes a lot of sense because as we're going through, yes, we weren't in classrooms teaching, but we were doing practicum. So we were assisting. Um, and so we could utilize this information within that practicum to see what the teacher was doing versus what was in the book or what we would do and sort of use that comparatively. Right. Yeah. The, the book is written based on this premise. I wanted to give the reader or the teacher something that they could do the next day, right? That was, that was, that was my goal. I wanted to get, and I still conduct my professional developments that way, right? In my own mind, I'm saying, I wanna give you something that you, you can go back to, take back to your classroom tomorrow. And I guess to move us on to the next question, kind of also related to my practicum experience, uh, I've worked in two um, pretty rural communities in our area, and while learning about CLR, this question kind of formed of like, how would you suggest that one work in CLR in a majority dominant identity classroom, thinking like white upper class, um, with traditional methodology, especially with limited admin support, because CLR is what we should be working towards, but how do we do that in an environment that's less than, um, less than willing? Right, right. So that's a, that's a, you know, that's a common question. I think that our work is really based around the notion that all schools have underserved students and how the school uh, is willing to admit that um, is really the, the correlate to the willingness. So I think where I've had a lot of success is making the case to places that would be reluctant, quote unquote, that you have underserved students first. The question is, what are you gonna, how are you going to better serve them? Or are you going to better serve them? Or just go, you know, oh, well, so sad, too bad for you, right? And I think when I framed it like that, it has at least opened people's mind to listen to the full argument. Um, so that that's where I typically that's where I want to typically start with like who are your underserved, right? And I'm saying you could also start at the point of outrageous love, but that that may be too touchy feely for some people, and you know they go like, oh, that's cute, it sounds good. Um, so I, you know, if we if that if you look at that as like the the, the the sort of big picture, but if you want to go one step under, then I would go with who are your underserved for those for those for the places that you're talking about. The second thing, so if they say we want to do with our underserved and we're open to an argument, then that opens the argument for CLR. And in that, I think it's important that they realize the um, because some people immediately assume that 
as you probably well know in your studies and your practice that it's about it's about race right and so i think for those situations it's very very important that they understand conceptually the rings of culture and the um the com the cultural behaviors that we're wanting teachers to focus on that i kind of took out of the iceberg concept of culture because it makes a big difference once they realize that those two things uh, have application to all students, regardless of race. And that tends to work in rural communities for me. It works in uh, predominantly white communities that I work with because it kind of nixes some of the pushback you get um, when you say that, you know, I say CLRs for, for everyone and it, it has a universal, it has, a, it can have a universal application, but you have to be willing to admit we have underserved students. See, I think that's really the core of the problem is that people are not willing to acknowledge that they have underserved students, unfortunately. But let me just say this, the pandemic, it helped because it was hard to deny you know, like it was hard. If, you, if they were trying to sweep it under the rug, the rug got ripped out, right? Mm -hmm. So that that you know, and I, that that ironic that um ironic or paradoxical twist we've been having with the pandemic, it certainly applied to schools and districts recognizing uh, more forthrightly who they're underserved were. Yeah, I think that a lot of the time there's that look at what is the percentage of free lunches that we get. Right. And, oh, we don't have that many, so we're not even going to think about it or worry about it. And, but are you getting any free lunches? And are there people who aren't getting free lunches who actually need them? What's happening with that, you know? Right. So it's just these numbers versus these people, you know, these statistics versus people. Um, so I think that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and we were talking about the the practicum. So we're actually currently in practicum with multilingual middle school students. So that's what we're doing for this semester. And we're doing a case study of a singular student over the course of the full semester. Awesome. So what wisdom can you impart that you think might be most valuable as we navigate EL students in a general education class or setting? And then like anything that you think that we should look for to provide that would add any extra value? Well, I mean, you know, practically speaking, when we're working with educators in their classrooms, we're trying to get them to recognize who their students are culturally and linguistically. Um, and that is delving into the intersections of the rings of culture, meaning like you just identify the student as an English learner, but that really you know, on the surface, that doesn't tell me anything, right? And so I'm, am I, when I'm working with a teacher, especially one-on-one, -on -one, I say, am I to make, what, what am I to, what is the expected assumption that I'm supposed to make when you say I'm working with an EL student? Because whatever, whatever, that's supposed to mean something to me, right? But I really want teachers to dig under that and really get into what it in terms of the intersections of age or youth culture, uh, uh, gender culture, um, as if it applies, you know, religion culture, right? What, how are all those intersecting um, so that now it's not just quote unquote an English learner, right? 
And so I'm that would that'll be so question one would be is like who 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 is the student, right? The second thing would be, like I said earlier, we're trying to ultimately validate and affirm behaviors that the school culture does not inherently validate and affirm. That gets to our 16 behaviors like eye contact, um, you know, proximity, uh, directness, uh, realness. So I would want the teacher to do, in essence, kind of like an anthrop anthropological kind of study, if you will. How, how, how do those, when you look at those behaviors, how does this student's sort of home culture um, compare to what is expected of the school culture? And is the student being validated and affirmed in regards to those? So I just came back last night from Jacksonville working with Duval County. And we had a very, because I try to have them focus on certain behaviors, right? And so we had a very interesting conversation around eye contact, which I think is a basic, right? But it's an issue that comes up a lot with teachers of EL students, um, the, the non-maintenance of eye contact, and then the potential misconstrual of that as being, not being respectful or, you know, you know, they're like, that's old, like, we all know, that's so old, but still, it's still relevant for some teachers. So I thought they were going to want to talk about a more nuanced cultural behavior, like dynamic attention span or concept of time, but they wanted to talk about eye contact. Well, that's fine, right? So what I would say to apply to your situation is, what are those behaviors that you think the student is trying to bring that's not being looked at as a cultural asset, right? In this case, we talked about eye contact yesterday, right? So they, you know, we had spent the whole day together. So they they realize like, oh my gosh, we may be not validating and affirming our students based on non-maintenance of eye contact. Like they had that, that, uh, that epiphany, right? Which is good. Like that's what we want. The last part then becomes, which is not so much expressed in the book, but it's more so in my professional developments. Now that you have, now that you know who the students are, now that you know what their cultural assets are and where they may not be validating and affirmed, how are you going to talk to the student differently, relate to the student differently, and most importantly, what CLR, quote unquote, activities are you going to infuse into your instruction to teach differently? And that would then lead right into kind of some of the core things we do in the book instructionally. And within the school that I'm at, I think the worry is that I've not only been hearing it from my school, but from other schools that all my other peers are going to, that their teachers don't even know who are the multilingual or English language learners at all. Right. They're like, oh, I must have some in my class, but there isn't even a knowledge of who they are. Right. And so if there isn't a knowledge of who they are, how can they validate and affirm anything? Because they don't even know that that's a thing at all. Exactly. That's the problem. You, you know, that's this is why I'm getting on planes, traveling around, the, you know, right. You know, that, that I mean, you nailed it. I mean, um, I like it because once people. It's good in the sense that if we can get people to make that initial discovery, if we want to call it that, it, it can literally lead them to other places that we want them to go. But it's, it's getting them to make that initial discovery, as you just pointed out, like they don't they don't even know what they don't know. And that's the, that's the hardest to deal with is well, no, I'm gonna take that back. The hardest to deal with is when somebody thinks that they know and they don't know. But the second hardest is when somebody doesn't know what they don't know. 
you really bring the light to uh, just awareness is power. Um, when we read your, the book, the CLR book, um, we found the second one, second, um, like it would be the step up is the strategies, the cultural English response to teaching and learning, the blue book, yeah. um, as a second book to help us for implementing um, in the classroom once we get through our, um, not only our practicum, but our student teaching for next year to really help our classroom that we get to help. Um, is there any other readings that you would suggest that will help um, deepen our understanding of being culturally linguistic responsive, either from you or from someone who you, um, that helped you? I know you spoke of John, Co uh, Jonathan, Co sorry if I missed say the last name, Kozal, but do you have any other suggestions? Well, I mean, you know, the way that I've characterized this is because cultural responsiveness has become so cliche, so buzzword, and there are, you know, there are a lot of us who are doing this work. I think that, and I talk about this in the book, you really have to know your brand of CLR, right? And um, so when you ask, when people ask me that question, I think that it depends on what you're looking for and, and you have to know that we're not all the same. With that said, I mean, you know, a lot of people compare my work with Zaretta Hammond's work, um, although I, I see them differently because I think hers is more, you know, it's brain-based. It's like, it's more focused on the brain-based part of, uh, which is great. Um, I think that's, that is a necessary conversation connecting this to, um, what you know in terms of the brain-based research and also the rigor of the work. Um, so I always recommend Zaretta's work. I think that I, you know, I didn't really mention, but I'm really, I'm really, and she's in your part of the world, I'm really under the Geneva gay tree of this work. Like if I were if I were to be put under a researcher, you would put me under Geneva Gay. And um and uh, then Lisa Delpit, you know, of course they're, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, kicking back and enjoying the sun a little bit now and they're in, but those are really my two go-tos in terms of my research, in terms of uh, my theoretical framework would be Lisa Delpit and, and Geneva Gay. Um, also, I like um, Sammy Aleem and, uh, Django in terms of culturally sustaining. So, but again, it's different. You know, it's, it's, it's bringing something, it's bringing another lens to this work. So I think that um, it just depends on what you're looking for. Um, that's how, and I ask people, what, you know, I, I work a lot with people who do um, uh, Lindsay cultural proficiency model, and that's geared towards leaders more so than teachers. But you know, they have a, that's a big thing as well. So I, I, I usually answer that question by asking people kind of what you're looking for. You know, our work is totally focused around um, instruction. So, um, and I think that's where we've been, you know, really successful because as someone mentioned earlier, you don't really see a lot out there from that practical piece. And that's, you know, that's what I, when I was in graduate school, that's the way I felt, like just how you felt, like, like, man, there's, there's not a lot out here if people want to know how to do it. And that's why I've, I've totally focused on that. And frankly, I think we need more, we need more of how to do it. 
yeah, I was, um, when we were looking through other things, um, we were, that's why I brought this question up because I was like, there's a lot out there, just especially with the, the way the climate or things have been happening in the last couple of years. Um, everything's being thrown out. So there's a lot of like, what you think would be it? But if you deep dive, deep, or deep dive into it, it's not really for applicational purposes. Um, and so thank you. Like that, that really helps to give us more perspective, especially going into uh, student teaching with that practical, a uh, lot of those practical pieces because we got to learn how to help do this, but also give them the stand or help meet the standards and everything in tandem together. And you do really well to help blending that per, those perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, try to. <laughs> it's amazing. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm surprised that there's not more. Like when we were getting this, I was like, oh yeah, everyone's gotten this. And then going out into the field, we're like, no, not yeah. necessarily. That's not the case. No, 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 no. I mean, because there's so much out there. That's what I'm saying. People have plenty to choose from. Um, but I like, I like kind of the grassroots element of of the work um, because I'm, I'm not sure how it would feel, you know, like if everybody and their mama had the book, you know what I mean? Like, I like, I like how it's kind of, it's kind of stays under the radar a little bit. You know, what happened to, what happened for me was I realized I, I, I underestimated though it's reach. And I had, I had two situations that let me know that there was sort of a building community around the work, like which we call VAB nation right now was once what one happened when I had uh, I had the I got to do a session in Puerto Rico and all these all these educators came from the Caribbean and even South America and I had no idea that my book was being used in like St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and all those places and it was it was like I was I was in shock right that um and then I found out that um, the province of Nova Scotia um, had been using the book for years and I had no idea. And they actually asked TCM, that's the publisher, if I would be willing to come to Nova Scotia because they had been reading the book for years. And I said, of course, so in 2018, I got to go and do, um, a presentation. I did 11 presentations in Nova Scotia with over uh, 2,000 people in each session. So that was that was that. So that let me know right there that it was a little more than I thought it was. But I like how we're still kind of grassroots about it. We touched on this briefly earlier, and it was a question we had planned as well. But with CLR becoming this buzzword. What would you like have in mind for taking it from that buzzword and talking to teachers who claim to practice CLR? And when you realize that it's much, what they're doing is much more surface level. I know this has happened kind of often in the instructional field where a term is suggested and it's brought forward and then it starts to become a buzzword and then it loses its meaning, kind of like what happened with culturally relevant pedagogy and how that's kind of built into sustaining pedagogy over the years. Um, we got to read an article uh, from Lads and Billings for a different class in the fall, and she discussed that difference as well. And I was wondering if you've seen that with CLR and how to kind of combat that misinterpretation. Well, what I've always tried to do is 
offer different entry points for people on how they are defining and conceptualizing CLR. So for us, you know, people associated mostly thankfully with VAB, right? So that moves it away from that sort of theoretical um, place that we've been in for so long in terms of CLR, right? So, you know, outrageous love, VAB, um, these are terms that people have taken that I think has given it its own branding, right? And that helps people distinguish it from the history of the, of the, of the uh, theory, but also all the different versions that you see popping up everywhere. Um, secondly, I think, so I think having different terminologies is one way, which we do. The second thing is I, a lot of times people don't realize that what it means for us is the connecting the uh, activity with a specific validating and affirming of a culture behavior or building bridging of a school culture behavior. And for us, that's the secret sauce. Um, making that connection so that if I do a shout out, I'm directly connecting it to my validating and affirming my students' spontaneity, right? If I do a give one, get one, then I'm directly connecting it to my students' um, kinesthetic movement, and that's that's the that's 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 our that's our secret sauce right there. Because um, a lot of a lot of places come with strategies and activities, but they're not linking it to cultural behaviors, cultural and linguistic behaviors, and I, for us, that becomes the ultimate separator. Thank you for that. I think that's definitely what we saw in the book too with the connection, like you said, of this intention to this action, because I've seen both within classrooms where teachers are talking about an intention, but that action doesn't match it, or they're doing a CLR action without thinking that it is, and it, they've just found it to be effective. Right, right, exactly. Yep, yep, yeah. Yeah, I also just really appreciate, yeah, the like vabbing, right? Like each of those letters is an action, something that you actively do, validating, affirming, building, and bridging, right? So I love, and I think that the students too, not just these three, it was a class of, well, I guess in total, your cohort's like 45 students. Um, they could glom onto, right? Like, okay, these are the things that I need to do in order to enact this, this theory that I find really important. Kind of going back to it, the the purpose of this textbook, it was really illuminating to hear about how, you know, first of all, this is coming from like your vast professional development experience, and also your work with emergency credentialed folks who needed something, needed something that they could implement the next day in class. I'm curious um, if if you were to write another book or or focus this towards students like these three who are in a more traditional teacher ed program where they haven't, um, they don't have their own classrooms yet, but they're kind of being sort of led deeply into the waters of, of teaching full-time. I wonder if you have any specific advice or how your advice might've changed or been adapted for a pre-service audience, or is there anything 
unique to the pre-service experience that, that we should be focusing on in trying to implement CLR? You know, that's an interesting question. And um, the one way that I can answer it is that is one of the reasons why I'm not in teacher education anymore. <laughs> um, because here's the deal. I think that, and, and it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be very helpful in some senses, but I think that just to give you a little bit, you know, eventually the emergency credential went away and we went back to being predominantly pre-service oriented. And I noticed a very, I, I noticed an immediate change in the student's response to what I was doing because, because in some ways it was too practical right? It was too practical. And so I had to dial it back a little bit. And it made me realize that actually, I think CLR is actually geared towards the in-service teacher, right? But I do realize that in terms of what you can front load, obviously we have to do a pre-service. And I think that anything that we can do that gives the pre-service teacher, the reality of what it's going to be like working with underserved students, that's what we should do, whatever, whatever that is. Like I see, like you have a practicum. Um, so, you know, I started to do a lot of situations where we were doing, you know, in-class scenarios and lesson plans and critiquing, you know, having the students critique each other and things like that, because it's something that, until you do it or or feel it or experience it, there is no way you can really you can really prep somebody for it. And I, I frankly think that we have done a we we have we 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 sell a bill of goods to pre-service teachers about what they're gonna face, what we talk about pre-service versus what they're gonna face when they actually get out there. And and so I think that. For me, it would be trying to put them in situations where they can get that feeling as soon as possible. That's super helpful and insightful. Um, yeah, and that, that sums up my question. I think there's just one left. Yeah, I mean, it's really just sort of geared toward what are you working on now? Like, what the, does the future hold for you? And then also, <laughs> just sort of in service of us, how could we collaborate with you and your team in the future sure. you know is there something that we could do in order to get into that yeah no absolutely absolutely well I mean right now I, I'm just trying to make the work my focus is making our work stick right and you know coming off uh, going through the pandemic going through the racial justice reckoning and just realizing that a lot of people thought they were doing it during CLR, but they but they realized they were not. Um, so to actually do it and sustain it, what does that mean? What does that take? And that's where my focus is with my work. I, you know, I used to do a lot of, you know, pre pre-COVID, I used to do a lot of one and dones. I mean, literally flying into a city doing a training and then flying right out, you know, and not giving a second thought if the people are going to apply the work or not. But I'm not, 
I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I mean, because once you realize that you could do that virtually, like why, why fly across the country, right? But to be honest with you, I'm, I'm even stop, I'm even beginning to stop doing it virtually because I know that if we can't get a commitment to sustainability, then, you know, we're not, we're not gonna, we're gonna be back where we were again, right? So I would say my focus has shifted majorly from the professional learning experience of our work to the professional practice of our work. And it's not that it wasn't always there, but I don't think that, I think I focused too much of getting the message out versus making sure the methodology was done. And now I have shifted that focus, right? Um, so that's, that's so all, everything I'm geared toward is sustainability, right? It's really, to be honest with you, it's things that occur in schools and districts beyond the book, right? They've read the book. They love the book. They've been exposed to the book. They're ready to rock and roll. Now what? And now I'm trying to help districts formulate that now what? Which, you know, probably could be more like a implementation book or like, how do you sustain this workbook? Maybe that's kind of, you know, something to think about. In terms, I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of, look, you don't, we, you, you can just become part of Vab Nation. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of educators, like I just mentioned, from Hawaii to Nova Scotia. I mean, I even have, I know we have some following in Poland and I'm all for just connecting folks. So, like I said, we could do it through social media um, or I can um, connect you with, you know, my team, which are teachers anyway, who, who, who have been doing the work and uh, expose you to other things that we're doing. Um, you know, I don't know where you are, but, I, you know, I'm working with uh, districts in your area. I'm working with uh, Mokoteo, Mokoteo, which is right outside Seattle, working in Seattle doing some work in Tacoma. Um, so we, you know, I don't know the geography of things, but we could maybe try to connect, you know, when I'm up your way. Um, so there, there are, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to, to network. And, I, you know, I would love to have you part of our, part of our community. I would love that. I'm, all of us, I'm sure would love that. Yeah. You were talking about sustaining. I think that the just before we go here is they, there is the implementation, but it's the holding themselves accountable and continuing that, that I see is a huge issue because it's almost like, here's the pop culture of it. Here's that, like listening to hip hop and playing a hip hop song, like in that, um, in that article, but then that's not, that's not culturally sustaining anything. That's just putting something in that is related to a culture versus actually looking in deeper. Like you said, the iceberg, they're hitting the surface, but we definitely need to continue holding ourselves accountable. And for the people who are going into it, creating that accountability for ourselves when we go into start teaching. So um, I do really appreciate all of that. No, no, you're, you're, de- you're right. You know, schools are, districts are incredibly, are big bureaucracies, right? And when I speak to the sustainability of it, I'm really saying, how do we put it into the water so that it has, so that it's adopted and integrated? Um, because so many places we go, they, they, they go to interest awareness and maybe what we call mental tryout. 
but rarely, rarely do we get to actual tryout adoption and integration where that it's it literally becomes a part of everything that the district is doing that's when i say sustainability that's what i'm saying that i try to i'm trying to get clr district-wide coaches as a an official position in the district that so that it be, so that it becomes it's ironic like i hate bureaucracies but i'm trying to get clr to become part of the bureaucracy that that's what i'm trying to do you have um, to get someone at the table that can help with that hyper, not hyper focus, but can actually be that glean of light that they desperately need. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I look forward to us collaborating. You know, you know, you get yes. and uh, just reach back out to Young. Reach back out to Young, and um, or you can email me directly. You may have my email, so no need to go there um, for whatever you know. Either one of us for whatever you need. And I will send you. Um, the link to the podcast, if you, or uh, to both of you, if you want to put that up on Twitter or whatever it may be. Um, We're going to put it on everything. We're going to put it on on our website, Facebook. We're going to put it on everything. That would be amazing. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, that's cool. It's totally, it's a totally cool assignment. Kudos to you, uh, Jessica. It's just a great, it's just a great assignment. Yes. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Um, I'll head out. I know you have a super busy day ahead of you. Yep. 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 Uh, yeah. Send it. I can't wait to listen to it myself. I want to listen to it. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank, thank you so you. much. Cheers, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Bye. coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.